You know, we've been doing this big research project about online misinformation about prostate cancer. And one of the most common topics that comes up is this, these supplements or the miracle pill, miracle cure. And you see these things and they get lots of views on YouTube and, and TikTok. Everyone wants the easy pill. I mean, if we didn't have to, you know, eat healthy all the time and exercise, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just take a pill and it all goes away? But unfortunately, there's no shortcuts to living a healthy life. For sure, yes. And if you see something that's being advertised, like, you know, no side effects, miracle cure for prostate cancer, if it sounds too good to be true, it's because it is too good to be true. Welcome back to the Rena Malik MD podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Today, our guest is Dr. Stacy Loeb. She is professor of urology at New York University and the Manhattan Veterans Hospital. She's board certified in urology and lifestyle medicine and hosts the popular Sirius XM men's health radio show. Today, we talk about everything prostate cancer. We talk about how to keep your prostate healthy and prevent prostate cancer. We talk about does ejaculation actually play a role in preventing prostate cancer and what to do to get screened for prostate cancer. When should you get screened earlier and how often? We talk about the use of MRI for prostate cancer and how to determine what treatment is best for you for prostate cancer. We also discuss lifestyle modifications for people who are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, as well as starting testosterone therapy after you've been diagnosed and treated for prostate cancer. We hope you enjoy today's show. Dr. Loeb, Stacy, it is so wonderful to see you and have you here on my podcast. It has been such an honor to get to know you over the past several years, and I'm so excited to talk about prostate cancer and health today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, your interest in prostate cancer started because someone close to you had prostate cancer. Can you share sort of your story? For sure, yeah. So actually, when I was in med school, my grandfather died of prostate cancer, and he really raised me, so it just hit me really hard. And I really actually didn't know anything at all about prostate cancer. I didn't even know that urologists were the doctors who treat prostate cancer or anything like that, but I sort of did a deep dive and I saw some lectures about prostate cancer after that, and they were like, hey, is anyone interested in doing research on prostate cancer? And I was super interested, you know, in anything that could help other families, you know, not lose their grandfather. And so uh, so that was kind of where it all began, and I've basically been studying it every day ever since. Yes, and for those of you who don't know, Dr. Loeb is very prolific in the area of prostate cancer and prostate health, and she's even boarded in lifestyle medicine. So today's conversation is gonna be a real treat. So I think people wanna know generally, what can they do to improve prostate health overall and prevent prostate cancer? So in terms of diet or other modifiable risk factors. Yeah, so that's a really good question. And prostate cancer, it's like about 50-50 in terms of genetic versus like lifestyle and other things that happen during your lifetime. So there is a very large genetic component. And obviously, we can't change our genes. But what we can do is know about our family history. And so if somebody does have a family history of prostate cancer or other cancers that may be related like breast cancer, then, you know, getting screened early is one of the best ways at least to prevent an aggressive cancer by at least just finding it early. 
Um, but in terms of things we can change, you know, diet and lifestyle are extremely important in terms of the risk of prostate cancer and really any cancer. Not a lot of people seem to know this, but uh, red meat and processed meat are considered carcinogens by the World Health Organization. So things like, you know, bacon, salami, cold cuts, these are group one carcinogens, which means they cause cancer in humans. So that's actually like the same risk level as smoking and asbestos. And then other kinds of meat like beef, pork, lamb, these are considered group 2A carcinogens, which means probably causes cancer in humans. And that's the same category as like DDT, mustard gas. So, you know, these are really like some of the foods that we should definitely avoid in terms of reducing the risk of cancer and prostate cancer specifically. Um, You know, and physical activity is very important, maintaining a healthy weight, Um, All of these things are going to reduce the risk of cancer. Yeah. And I think in terms of meat, I get a lot of pushback from people who are like, well, the studies didn't look at people who were having a healthy diet with grass-fed meats or not eating other bad, consuming other bad foods or like bad foods that are, you know, not good for you, like simple carbohydrates and sugars. And so that's the pushback I get. So what do you say to people like that? I mean, we've done a lot of studies on this in our group. And for example, you know, we've found that the more plant-based food you eat and the less animal-based food you eat, the lower your risk of prostate cancer. So for example, we published about a year ago um, in a really large study, more than 40,000 people in this study out of Harvard University, that the men who consumed the most plant-based food had about a 19% lower risk of fatal prostate cancer or like the cancer that kills you. So I think this is very real. And actually, it appeared that eating less of the animal food as well as more of the plant food are both important. So it's getting rid of some of those cancer-causing substances in the meat. But then also, the plant-based food has a lot of important things that help you fight cancer, like antioxidants, fiber, and these are only found in plant foods. So I think it is actually pretty clear. Are there certain foods, and so I know plant-based foods you've sort of shown and in multiple studies that have been beneficial, but are there certain foods, like I know lycopene has been significant, or extensively studied in prostate cancer, are there certain foods or supplements for that matter that are beneficial in prevention? Yeah, that's a great question. And so the, the specific foods that you would want to definitely incorporate into this plant-forward dietary pattern would be cooked tomato products. So that's the lycopene that you mentioned. And so cooked tomatoes, because it's actually better bioavailability when it's cooked. So that's good news. You know, if you eat things like tomato sauce with, you know, pastas or pizza or whatever it may be, you know, tomato soups, these are all like easy sources of lycopene. Um, Another specific food that's important to have in the mix are cruciferous vegetables. And this is like a big family of lots of, you know, green leafy kinds of vegetables, you know, things like collard greens, broccoli. And so this is another really great category. Um, Soy products are also very good for the prostate, you know, whether that's Uh, tofu or tempeh or whatever uh, preparation that you enjoy. Um, And then, you know, nuts are also healthy for the prostate. And so soy and nuts are some good sources of protein uh, that would be much more prostate healthy than meat or dairy. Okay. And then 
In terms of things like zinc, vitamin E, I know there's been some data on that. Where do we stand currently on those sorts of things? Yeah, so there's definitely been a lot of controversy over supplements. You know, in lifestyle medicine, we really focus mostly on getting um, all of these substances from food. And if you are really eating like a whole foods plant-based diet, which is, you know, mostly unprocessed plant-based foods with a variety of fruits, vegetables, legumes, you're really getting all of the vitamins that you need from the diet. And so really the only supplements that I think are very important in that case are vitamin B12 and vitamin D. Um, other than that, I really don't recommend any specific supplements for, you know, reducing the risk of prostate cancer. You know, sadly, there had been some early evidence suggesting that some supplements might actually help prevent prostate cancer, like maybe taking selenium or vitamin E. And then they did these big trials and, and it actually, you know, didn't pan out at all. So, you know, I think where we're at right now is the best thing that you can do is to, you know, eat a healthy uh, plant-based diet and get all these nice, you know, uh, vitamins and antioxidants in the food. Yeah. And I think, I think that's important. I think a lot of people want a quick sort of, get, let me take this pill and it'll help me prevent prostate cancer. But unfortunately, there's no shortcuts to living a healthy life. Uh, that is so true. And, you know, we've been doing this big research project about online misinformation about prostate cancer. And one of the most common topics that comes up is this, these supplements or the miracle pill, miracle cure. And you see these things and they get lots of views on YouTube and, and TikTok and, and yeah, like, of course, uh, everyone wants the easy pill. I mean, if we didn't have to, you know, eat healthy all the time and exercise, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just take a pill and it all goes away? But, you know, I, I am really sad to say that we just don't have the magic pill. And if you see something that's being advertised, like, you know, no side effects, miracle cure for prostate cancer, if it sounds too good to be true, it's because it is too good to be true. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great thing to go by, right? These supplements are not regulated. I talk about this a lot on my channel. They're not regulated. There's no governing body reviewing them, making sure that what's on the label is actually in the supplement. Usually the studies that are done on these supplements are really small studies. They're not often randomized controlled trials, although we have some, as you mentioned, for selenium and vitamin E and prostate cancer, they've done rigorous studies. And so, and saw palmetto is one of those too for a enlarged prostate. And so they've done rigorous studies for these supplements and shown ultimately that there's no benefit. And so while, you know, probably taking supplements is, is not going to harm you, but they are going to cause you financial harm and potentially delay you from getting accurate care. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good summary. And, you know, yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make that they're not regulated. And actually, there was a really scary case report that was published in prostate cancer, where some people were taking these men's health supplements, and they had some ingredients that were not disclosed that were actually testosterone containing and they um, you know, actually like developed like rapidly spreading aggressive prostate cancer uh, after taking these supplements and a few of them got pulled from the market subsequently. So at least, you know, that particular preparation isn't out there now, but 
who knows what what has replaced it and and I think you know I, let let the buyer beware. Yeah, so they can be harmful. They can be harmful. And there's actually been a a, a study about how many people en- enter the emergency room related to supplement related issues, and it's not insignificant. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but they can be dangerous at times, particularly because they're not regulated. Um, now, to move on to, you did mention breast cancer. I think a lot of people don't know that having a family history of breast cancer may put you at a higher risk for prostate cancer. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, prostate cancer genetics is really like a huge area of research right now. And what we're learning is that some of the same genes that cause breast cancer actually also cause prostate cancer. So some of the listeners may have heard of things like BRCA or the BRCA genes. Uh, these are some of the, uh, you know, high risk genes for breast and ovarian cancer, turns out they also increase the risk of aggressive prostate cancer. So, you know, for many years, even urologists would just ask patients, you know, do you have a family history of prostate cancer? Yes or no, but that's not really enough. And actually, we need to know if they have any female relatives with history of breast or ovarian cancer. And there's other cancers that may be related to, like pancreatic cancer is also linked with these same genes, for example. So yeah, very detailed. It's really important for people to just, as much as possible, not all of us can get the details of our family history. And, and some people you know, may not uh, know all of their relatives or have access to this information. But if, if you do, you know, it's good to really find out the details of any cancers and family members because that could affect your risk and also your children and your other relatives. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. And prostate cancer is very common. It is the second most common cancer in men. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And actually, they just published the 2024 cancer statistics, and and, uh, the number of new cases is projected to be higher in 2024 than 2023. So it seems like the incidence of prostate cancer is actually going up, uh, which was sad to hear. Um, And it's also the second most common cancer in men globally. So uh, definitely, you know, this is very common. Uh, But, you know, just like you were saying, you know, just like um, men may not be aware that they're at a higher risk of of prostate cancer because their mom or their sister had breast cancer. But this is also relevant for their children, whether their children are male or female, uh, you know, having somebody in the family with prostate cancer could affect cancer risk. Yeah. And so globally, it's the second most common. So there's really no variation across the globe. It's, it's prevalent everywhere across the, across the globe. Well, there's definitely some variation. I mean, certain regions uh, do have more cases than others. So for example, you know, North America, where we are, uh, Northern Europe, uh, these are some very high prevalence areas. Same with Australia, uh, whereas actually there is a lower risk of prostate cancer in Asia. Um, And some of this may relate to some of these dietary factors. So one day, just kind of for fun, I superimpose like the prostate cancer heat maps that show the incidence with like per capita meat and dairy consumption. And the overlap was actually like pretty uh, striking. And so, you know, and and what what they found, they've done some of these migration studies Mm -hmm. where, for instance, they look at people who, you know, migrated from Japan to the U.S. 
U.S. And the longer they were in the U.S., their risk of prostate cancer actually started approaching people who were born in the U.S., uh, you know, didn't quite reach it, but, but went up. So something about moving to this country, which is probably adopting the standard American diet or the sad diet, because it's, it's very sad what it does to the body. And so just moving to the U.S. and having our lifestyle here, you know, seems to actually raise the risk. So, so there's definitely some variation globally, but yes, it is certainly, you know, common worldwide. And, and, uh, it's great that you're raising more awareness about it on here because it definitely doesn't get the level of, of funding or attention. And I think there is just some, you know, stigma about screening and things like that. Yeah. And we're going to talk about screening, but do you think that you said it's rising, right? The incidence of prostate cancer is rising. Do you think it's all dietary? Are there other factors, environmental or otherwise, that may be contributing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably a whole bunch of things that are contributing. You know, I think uh, for one thing, um, there has been some controversies over about screening for prostate cancer over the last 10 years. So, you know, there was a period of time where people were saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't screen for prostate cancer. You know, not everybody uh, believed that, but... Um, anyhow, you know, so the screening kind of went down for a while, and so some people weren't weren't being diagnosed with prostate cancer, and now I think uh, screening has picked back up some. So some of it may sort of be an artifact related to um, how much screening is going on for prostate cancer. Uh, but yeah, it's probably a whole host of different things that are at play here. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, there was this one study that that showed that ejaculation frequency was associated with a decreased prostate cancer risk. And this went sort of viral in the media. So a lot of my audience wants to know are, is ejaculation frequency or sexual activity or prostate play or things like that, do they affect your risk of getting prostate cancer? Yeah, so great question. And, and that was a very interesting study, very popular topic. I've had that on my radio show a whole bunch of times with Jennifer Ryder, who was the first author. Uh, that was actually using the same data database out of Harvard as uh, some of those plant-based diet studies that I mentioned earlier. So really large uh, studies from Harvard uh, where they asked these men, you know, to discuss, you know, the, the recall, basically the frequency of ejaculation. And what they found is that the people who had ejaculated on average more than 21 times per month uh, did have a decreased risk of prostate cancer, and it was statistically significant, and it was about a 20% decreased risk. So it's a pretty, you know, substantial finding. Um, and, you know, so there is, uh, you know, sort of this hypothesis about like, you know, stagnation, and is there something to be said for sort of cleaning the pipes? Um, now, that study did not delve into, you know, um, the type of activity that preceded the ejaculation. So we don't exactly know, you know, um, how, how they were ejaculating or what type of sexual activity or was involved. Um, but it does appear that, you know, cleaning out the tubes, you know, may be associated with a reduced risk. 
Um, now, that being said, you know, these are observational studies. Uh, so it could be that there is some other factor that is different about people who ejaculate more than 21 times per month compared to other people. Now, this is a very, you know, well-established study that this came out of. So they collect data on a, a lot of different factors. So Certainly, the, the researchers did their best to, you know, take into consideration as many things as they possibly could in this analysis, but, but you know, needless to say. So I think, you know, a, a, a take-home message could certainly be, you know, that if anything, you know, higher ejaculation frequency may have some sort of beneficial relationship with prostate cancer, um, however that may be accomplished. Um, it certainly doesn't appear harmful. And, you know, um, of course, you know, with safe sex practices, since they're on the flip side, there may be some kind of relationship between inflammation or having sexually transmitted infections with increasing the risk of prostate cancer. So I wouldn't uh, do this, you know, while, uh, you know, jeopardizing, uh, you know, safe sexual practices. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, if you ejaculate more than 21 times a month, it may help you. So by all means, go ahead, as long as you're safe. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we've had a lot of funny conversations about that. I mean, I've had some some very fun callers on the radio show over the years, like, oh, you know, Dr. Loeb, like, last month I was really busy at work, and I only had, like, three ejaculations. If I have, like, 50 or 70 this month, can I even <laughs> it out? And, you know, I don't think people need to be, like, so scared about, like, this exact number of 21. You know, that just happened to be be like the cutoff that they used in this study. I don't think there's any sort of, you know, gospel to this exact number. But, you know, just to keep it in mind. But I think it was overall a positive message. I mean, I definitely had some callers on that segment who were like, hey, you know, I'm going to put my wife on the phone. Can you like <laughs> repeat this again? Because because we just have to discuss how if we don't have sex more, like I'm going to be at higher risk of cancer. So I think, you know, in general, this is a feel good study. Yeah. And sex is not the only way you can masturbate. I mean, you can masturbate, you can do other things. So don't put the pressure on your partner. Um, we talk about that a lot on my channel. So feel free to check those videos out. But in general, um, yes, mas masturbation, safe sex practices, all those things seem to be positive, at least in terms of prevention of prostate cancer, but not gospel. Um, in terms of early signs of prostate cancer. So we know screening is there for a reason, but a lot of my audience wants to know, are there early signs or are there things that they should be sort of on the lookout for? Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought this up because actually this is another big topic of misinformation that we've seen on Instagram and TikTok where people are saying like early warning signs for prostate cancer, you know, if you're peeing a lot or you see blood in your urine or your erections are not good, like these could be early warning signs of prostate cancer. No, I'm sorry. Those are not early warning signs of prostate cancer. The unfortunate truth is that prostate cancer just does not have early warning signs. It does not have any of those symptoms until it's at a very late stage. And so that is why screening is important because you will not have symptoms from prostate cancer. So you would not know that you have it until it was already advanced. So screening is mostly these days just done by a simple blood test. 
And that is the best way to find it early. If you are already having some kind of urinary problem, like blood in the urine that's related to prostate cancer, then that would likely be an advanced cancer. And it is definitely better to have it diagnosed early because there are a lot of great treatment options when it is diagnosed early. Yes. And just to be clear, urinating frequently or having blood in the urine does not always mean that you have a prostate cancer. It can mean that you have a lot of other issues that may be causing those symptoms. So don't freak out. Uh, but it is important to get screening. So what are the guidelines now for screening? They have evolved over the last I don't know, 10, 15 years. So maybe you can give us a summary of what people should be doing and how often. Yeah, so no, and that's a great point that you made that these are usually symptoms of other things. So if you're peeing a lot, you know, that could be that the prostate is enlarged, which isn't cancer at all. That's a totally benign process. And there's treatments for that. So it's very important that if you're having some symptoms in your urine that you are still like seen by the doctor and blood in the urine, I mean, that could be an infection, that could be many other things. And so all of these things should be worked out, um, but they are likely not due to prostate cancer. Screening for prostate cancer. So this is the way to find it early. And nowadays, what we're really recommending is a baseline test in the 40s for men. Um, and this is really important because it helps tell the risk that you will ever have prostate cancer in your lifetime. And so, you know, that sounds really early, um, but that is really the best time to do it. Now, the good news is that prostate cancer screening historically was done with two tests. It was done with the blood test and also the prostate exam. And that is not popular. That is a finger in the rectum. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of stigma. And some people just flat out refuse it. And I think, you know, unfortunately, it's been a bit of a barrier to prostate cancer screening over the years, where people just do not want that test. So they just kind of avoid the whole thing. Uh, but the good news is that recently that has really moved more into uh, like a a supplemental role or a second line position. So really, it is mainly nowadays just focused on this blood test. So very easy, you know, could be done with, you know, your annual labs at a physical exam and not even a separate stick. And so I think hopefully this kind of removes sort of this impediment that's been there to prostate cancer screening over the years. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was actually a recent study that came out that digital rectal exam is not necessary. And I think as urologists, a lot of us are conflicted on this because there's a lot we gain in terms of information from a prostate exam because you're often seeing us for other things. You're often seeing us for symptoms like going often to the bathroom or uh, um, or other issues that may be indicative of an enlarged prostate or pelvic floor problems, which are all diagnosed with a rectal examination. So... Again, I think it's not necessary for screening based on the data, um, and but when you see a urologist, you may still be offered that test because we gain other information from it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think there are some things that we can find out from it. And for example, you know, if somebody gets the prostate blood test, which is called PSA, prostate specific antigen. So if you get this test and it's a little bit elevated, the prostate exam could actually help to sort out 
whether it's, you know, likely to be due to cancer or whether the prostate is just really big because this substance that we're measuring is made by the prostate. So the more prostate there is, the more of it there is, but there could also be a little tiny tumor in there that's pumping this stuff out. And so the question is, is it high because the prostate's huge, so there's just lots of prostate making this stuff? Or is the prostate really small, uh, but there's like a nodule there, a tumor that's pumping this out? And so you definitely can get some more information by doing the exam, but it's certainly, you know, by no means is it mandatory. And I definitely don't think that anyone should, you know, avoid screening altogether because they don't want this done. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, the one thing I do caution patients on is there's a small subset of cancers, and I think it's like less than 3% that don't emit a PSA. And so I've only seen a couple in my lifetime. You've probably seen a lot more because they get referred to you preferentially. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Is there, uh, are there certain people who should maybe be screened with a rectal examination? Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely the vast majority of prostate cancers, they make more of this PSA substance. So, you know, it, and it is really a spectrum. I mean, the higher the number is, the higher the risk. But yes, there is a very small subset of some uh, very aggressive prostate cancers, actually, where the cancer is sort of like so aggressive that it's not even like producing this well. And so, you know, yes, could you miss, you know, this very small proportion of cases by not doing the exam? Um, yes, I think that is possible. However, overall, the performance of the prostate exam is just not as good for cancer detection as the blood test. And if that's going to be the reason why thousands of people just don't get screened at all, then I think if you were to look at this like from a population standpoint, you know, it could be that, you know, the harm of pushing it um, is more than the gain from these few people. So I think, you know, patients can decide with their doctor, you know, probably people are being offered the test and, and they can decide, you know, am I willing to risk that I could have one of those small proportion of cancers where the, the blood test, you know, didn't show it? Um, or am I okay with just having this exam done and I just want, you know, sort of the full assessment? Yeah, and I think the other thing you mentioned about having a high PSA is sometimes it can be due to other things like having an enlarged prostate. So what is the utility of getting a second PSA shortly after you have an elevated one? And how often are we seeing that those other issues, like, an, I mean, like, a, for example, an acute infection, which is more readily able to increase PSA sort of dramatically in a short period of time, how often are we seeing that being the cause? Yeah, so that's a great point. And, you know, as much as we're really lucky that we have this screening test for prostate cancer, and it really, it is a good screening test. I mean, most prostate cancers raise the PSA, and it is how we've been able to find so many cases early. So I think it's it's really a very helpful test in so many ways, but it is not a perfect test, like so many other tests in medicine. And it's really, it's sort of like the check engine light in the car. 
So when this PSA number, the prostate blood test is elevated, it's basically like the check engine light that you've got to check under the hood because it could be cancer, but it could be just the prostate grew. So more of this is getting made. It could be there's an infection or inflammation and that's allowing more of this to leak out. And so it does not definitely mean it's cancer. In fact, Many times when we do biopsies of the prostate to check if there's cancer there because the PSA went up, we find that there isn't cancer. There could be inflammation. It may just be the prostate was big. So yes, it can. So if you are somebody who's found to have an elevated PSA, first of all, don't panic because it may not even be cancer. And second of all, like you mentioned, it's important to repeat the test before doing anything because if it was something like inflammation, it may just go back down and then, you know, you can avoid all of the subsequent testing and anxiety. And so definitely what we recommend is that wait four weeks and check it again before taking any sort of action or doing anything invasive. Um, The other thing is, you know, I have seen a lot of patients where the PSA was checked when they had a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. And we know that if there's an infection or an inflammation there, that it's going to cause this stuff to leak out. And so that is going to raise it, but it's it's a false positive. This is like a red herring. And so, you know, I don't know why this is happening, but I see people are in the ER for a urinary infection and the PSA is sent, which causes then a whole series of repeat tests, anxiety. I mean, the whole thing is a mess. So if you have a urinary tract infection, do not check the PSA during that time. You know, that is just not useful at all. Or if you have a catheter. I I mean, I'm sure you've seen it too, but there's so many people on the floors in the hospital that had catheters that were getting PSAs checked and that will falsely elevate your PSA too. So don't freak out, recheck it when the catheter is out and, um, and reassess. Yeah. So I think it's really just unfortunate because some of these things just cause so much anxiety for people and the reading is just totally not even helpful. Yeah. And, you know, prostate cancer is really slow growing. So we talk about stopping screening at some point, usually when you have 10 years or less left to live, which is a difficult conversation to have with people. And I have it very often with patients. But Basically, because it's so slow growing, at least the teaching is that if you were to get it today and you were to die of something within 10 years, you're probably going to die of something else and uh, not of prostate cancer. So I know the guidelines say 69. Is that typically the age at which most people are stopping screening? You know, I think it really depends. I mean, some of the guidelines say, you know, no routine screening after age 70. Others sort of use 75, but say, you know, individualized. And I think everything in medicine should really be individualized. I mean, when I ran the New York City Marathon, there were some, you know, people in their 70s who beat me in the marathon. And, you know, and there's some people in their 70s who come to the clinic with their mother. And so, you know, if your mom is still alive and you're in your 70s or you're running marathons, then you probably are somebody who would still benefit from getting a PSA test. Um, 
you know, on the flip side, there may be some people in the 60s who have some other really major health problems, like maybe, you know, stage four colon cancer or something else where prostate cancer screening may not be really uh, that helpful because the likelihood of prostate cancer causing a problem during their remaining lifetime and undergoing all the testing for it could just cause, you know, more complications and worse quality of life. So I think, you know, just across the boards, whether you're younger or older, that all of these discussions need to take into consideration, you know, your overall health and and your goals. Yeah. And who needs to start screening early? Who needs to start? You know, obviously, we get a baseline level in the 40s, but who needs to then routinely get screened? Yeah. So, you know, the most critical are people who have risk factors. Black men have higher risk of prostate cancer. So the guidelines typically recommend starting screening earlier. Uh, If you do have a family history of prostate cancer, uh, that's another group of people where it's important to get screened earlier and to, you know, continue to get screened regularly. And of course, if you know that you have one of these genetic factors, so, you know, somebody who knows that they are a BRCA carrier, you know, maybe their their mother and sister both had breast cancer, you know, uh, that is somebody who may benefit from, you know, not only regular screening, but also considering, you know, genetic counseling and genetic testing um, if they have not yet done so. Yeah, that's very important. And talk about MRI. So when I was training, there was no MRI of the prostate. It sort of came about probably midway in my training and now has become very popular in the use of, uh, in the use of sort of diagnosis and, uh, and prostate cancer diagnosis. So should everyone be getting an MRI when you decide? Yeah. So MRI is really, I mean, I'd say maybe even like the most important advance that I've seen over the course of uh, my career in prostate cancer. And it really is helpful to just, you know, give us kind of a roadmap. And so, you know, it used to be that if your PSA was elevated, the prostate blood test was abnormal and we confirm that it really is abnormal and we don't have some other reason like an infection going on. And then we would just proceed straight to a biopsy. And, you know, biopsy is a big deal. It's invasive. You have to put needles in the prostate. And so there's risks like bleeding and infection. And a lot of them came back negative. You know, in many studies, let's say 25 to 30% of the people in these studies would have cancer. And that means all the rest of these people had a biopsy and no cancer was even found. Um, But the way that biopsies have been done historically may surprise a lot of people. So actually, it's just been a random sampling of the prostate. And so basically, if the prostate looks like this, you know, we would just take sort of six needles on this side and six needles on that side. So I kind of describe it like if you had like an apple, right? And there's like a little rotten section in the middle of the apple. So if I just stick 12 needles into the apple, six on one side, six on the other, I mean, if if the entire apple is rotten, then the needles are going to hit the rotten spot. But if it's only a very small area that's rotten, you know, the needle may or may not actually hit that area. So there was a lot of what we call sampling error, where the needles are actually only really checking like one 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 thousandth of the prostate tissue that's there. So people would get these biopsies and they may be told they have no cancer, but it may be that the biopsy just missed the cancer because it was small and it just didn't happen to be like right where those needles went in. 
And so the way that MRI has revolutionized things is that, first of all, it's just a lot better imaging than we had before, where we can actually see now if there's a suspicious area in the prostate. So that really helps to know like who definitely needs a biopsy. And if the MRI doesn't show anything concerning at all, you know, then people may decide they'll just sort of wait and see over time. So some people whose MRI come back negative don't even get the biopsy now because there's really only about a 9% chance that it's going to miss an important cancer. So it's really, it's very good. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's about 91% in terms of finding an important cancer. So I think that's really very good. But the other thing that it does is that when it shows an area that's concerning, not only does it tell us this person needs to have a biopsy, but now we can actually target the biopsy to that area. You know, basically, just like any other cancer in the body, I mean, can you even imagine like a breast biopsy and just Somebody gets needles sampled around the entire breast. I mean, you know, no, like that's not how, you know, other solid tumors are typically done. Like a breast biopsy is targeting a suspicious lesion that was found on imaging. And so the fact that prostate up until recently, the biopsy process was just sort of this like random sampling is, you know, pretty unique in terms of diagnostic testing for cancer. So now I feel like we're finally in the new millennium here where where biopsies can be targeting an area that's suspicious. And so I'm sure that nobody will be surprised to hear that this increases the yield of the biopsy. So we could select people better whether they actually need the biopsy. And then if they do, we can do a much better biopsy by honing in on the area that was suspicious instead of just putting needles all over randomly. Yeah, I think that's been very transformative. I mean, saving people biopsies is huge. And you're right, it's it seems silly that we could never target lesions before, but we didn't have that sort of imaging modality. Ultrasound was not sufficient to see these abnormal areas. Um, So it's been really wonderful and transformative, I think, for the management of prostate cancer. In terms of people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, now we can get into a lot of details about this, but we'll sort of make it more general in terms of what are, I think, the biggest misconceptions or take-homes that people often have once they're diagnosed and what are, we'll start with that. We'll start with that. So, you know, with people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, it's really important to figure out, you know, how high risk is the cancer? Because if it's low risk, you know, if it's not an aggressive cancer, you may not need any treatment at all. And so maybe the biggest myth is just that cancers need to be treated because not all cancers actually need upfront treatment. And prostate cancer is one of these because thankfully, many are actually very slow growing and can just be watched over time. And the reason that this is so nice is because treatments can have side effects. The prostate is in a real sort of high price real estate. It's, it's around a lot of really important stuff. There's the nerves that control erections. It's near the rectum where the poop comes out. It's near the bladder. So if you, anything you do to the prostate or sort of manipulating that area can affect things like sex and urination and bowels. And so if it's not necessary to, 
you know, do anything up front, it's really nice to just preserve quality of life as long as possible. So this is something we call active surveillance. And it's it is active. So the idea isn't like, you know, see you later, don't worry, it that is monitoring the cancer over time in an active way to see like, okay, you know, if things start getting worse, then we need to, you know, kick into action and do some kind of treatment. But many men can buy years or even avoid treatment altogether during their remaining lifetime if the cancer sort of stays at bay. So that's the good side for the very low risk kinds of cases. Um, now, if somebody's diagnosed with a higher risk prostate cancer, then treatment is really important. Um, but if the cancer hasn't spread, there's a lot of different ways to treat cancer in the prostate, things like surgery, uh, different kinds of radiation, um, and, you know, some, some more uh, sort of newer types of treatments where you can even, if it's just cancer in one location, it may be possible to just do sort of a spot treatment, more like the sort of idea of a lumpectomy sort of thing, but just, you know, either freezing it or what we call ablating the tumor, just put a, put a probe in and kill off that area while trying to reduce the side effects. So there's definitely a lot of investigation now into some of these like minimally invasive kind of options as sort of a middle ground for people whose cancer is not low risk, but not super high risk, who may want to see if this could reduce side effects. So lots of great studies happening to see if there's kind of new ways to treat it um, in the future and whether doing this kind of treatment, you know, um, can uh, still have good cure rates in the long term. Yeah, this is really exciting, I think. And granted, there's not a lot of, it has to be a focal cancer and prostate cancer is not always focal. Yeah. So I think it's really important to know that if you have a cancer, you need to understand that it, if it's not focal, those treatments are not accessible to you, unfortunately. Um, so I think that's really important to understand and realize that some of these, are these still considered investigational, some of them? Yeah, yeah. Some of these are still investigational. And it, this is definitely the, something that we do see advertised quite a bit on social media, some of these treatments like HIFU, H-I-F-U, which stands for High Intensity Focus Ultrasound. So this is just one of these sort of less invasive treatment types that's being studied. Um, you know, and the fact is we just don't have the long-term data that we have for some of these other things like surgery and radiation. So, you know, if you're in your 50s, like I can't tell you that, you know, for the next like 40 years of your life, let's say that this thing is going to, you know, uh, cure you permanently. Uh, that being said, you know, if you have a cancer that is suitable to this, uh, it's definitely something that can be done uh, that may have less side effects and other treatments could be done afterwards if it isn't enough. Um, but you're right, you know, I, it, it really has to be exactly the right cancer for one of these treatments to even be possible. Yeah. And so prostate cancer is just such a spectrum and no two cases are exactly alike. Depends on how much there is, exactly where it is. To, can you see it very well on the MRI? What is the person's priorities? You know, some people maintaining their sex life is the number one priority. Other people may not be sexually active and, you know, having the highest rate of cancer control is the number one priority. So I think 
it, working with the patient to figure out what is going to work for them and their tumor is what matters. You know, I think it's so great now that people who treat cancers and in general, we're looking at more of the quality of life of the patient, not just from the cancer, but even after the treatment. And I think that's so important for something like prostate cancer, which can dramatically affect your quality of life. Now, treating cancer is super important. And if it's aggressive or high risk, then I would say be as aggressive as possible. But in these lower risk patients or intermediate risk patients, I think there's room to discuss this and sort of work on how can we maximize your quality of life. Um, What I want to know is, you know, there are, as you mentioned, there's people who may be selling these therapies at a high price point and they're still investigational and they may be really good salespeople. Um, what, how can people know whether, like what are some red flags, I guess, in terms of people who are obviously in a vulnerable state with prostate cancer looking for the best treatment option possible from getting sort of sucked into things that maybe are investigational and should be only reserved for a clinical trial? Yeah, I mean, it's so important. And, you know, I've, I've seen some really scary stuff on social media, you know, even videos for injecting herbs into the prostate or things like that, that are just like not even evidence based, they're not in the guidelines, but yet, you know, these have a lot of views. So I mean, if something is being told to you that this is, you know, effective treatment with no side effects, that is, I'm sorry, there is no treatment that has zero risk of side effects. Even the less invasive treatments still have a risk of side effects. So I think, number one, if you're being told that this treatment has no risk of side effects, that that is just not realistic, unfortunately, in 2024 for prostate cancer. Uh, maybe one day we'll get there, uh, but we are not there yet. Um And, you know, I think some of the best ways to sort through this stuff is, first of all, to figure out who is the source of the information and not to just get your information from one source, you know, cross-referencing different, you know, uh, trusted sources of information. And also, I think just seeing different types of doctors is really important for something like prostate cancer. And most cases are not an emergency. You do not have to get treated in the next week or two weeks even. So, you know, there is time to take your time, talk to different doctors, get different opinions. Uh, And it's so important. You know, for example, you could see a urologist and a radiation oncologist and even a medical oncologist and just hear what everybody has to say about your case. Uh, So there's no rush into this. I think actually it's well worth taking the extra time to make sure that the treatment that you're going to get is the best one for you because we see a lot of treatment regret. That is like people who uh, think back like, ooh, if I knew what this could have been like, I never would have done this. And, And that's really sad, you know, to have that situation. And so making sure that you are as well informed as possible before you do anything is really key. Yes, that is really good advice. And I think taking your time for something like prostate cancer, and this is not true for every cancer, but for prostate cancer, taking your time and getting the advice of multiple disciplines and different types of doctors is going to be really beneficial um, overall. And just making sure that you cross-reference, like you said, like there's Um, very good resources like the CDC and the Mayo Clinic has good content. And um, now on YouTube, they have health verified sources. So just sort of looking for 
sources that are trustworthy and reliable and and sort of not um, falling into the trap of looking for something that's like sounds amazing, like no side effects, 100% effective is is really important. Yeah. And, you know, so in addition to some of those for prostate, you know, there's the Prostate Cancer Foundation has, you know, great educational content. In fact, they have a patient guide um, that you can get through their website as well as stuff on YouTube and other social platforms. Um, Zero Prostate Cancer is another great organization. Uh, They have a lot of content as well as support groups that can be very helpful. And, you know, support is something that is really important uh, going through this prostate cancer journey. And they have all kinds of support groups for different types of people, as well as partners of patients, because this this condition can have a lot of impact for the partner as well. And so it's nice that those kinds of resources exist. Um, The Urology Care Foundation is another group um, who has a lot of good content that's trustworthy about prostate cancer. So there are a lot of good things that are out there. So that's not to say, you know, everything on the Internet is bad. I think the Internet is actually really wonderful for a lot of things about prostate cancer, but you do have to be careful. In terms of people who are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, are there certain lifestyle modifications that you recommend? Well, really the same things in terms of preventing cancer, you know, so um, eating more plant-based is very important for people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer. We have a new paper coming out showing that the more plant-based you eat after you're uh, treated for prostate cancer, the less, uh, the better scores you had for erections, urinary control, and bowel function. And so really important still, these dietary factors. So you want to, you know, avoid the meat and dairy and have as much as possible of plant-based food. Physical activity, also really important. Uh, So, you know, the uh, physical activity guidelines for Americans are that people should be getting at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity. So that's like, you know, let's say 30 minutes a day, five days a week comes out to 150 minutes a week. Moderate intensity is where you can talk, but you can't really sing. So that's just sort of like a gauge of what the intensity should be like. Now, if you do like more vigorous activity, then you only need 75 minutes a week. So if it's vigorous, this means you can't really easily have a conversation or sing while you're doing this kind of activity. So that would also be, uh, you know, a great option. And then in addition to the aerobic physical activity or the cardio, you also want to be doing resistance training at least twice a week. And so this is uh, really what all Americans should be doing, but very, very important in cancer uh, because there's a lot of very well-established benefits from the physical activity in prostate cancer where it's been shown to increase people's energy and better quality of life uh, during their prostate cancer journey. Um, Another thing to consider is good sleep. Uh, You know, unfortunately, sleep takes a big hit um, after a prostate cancer diagnosis. Uh, We did a big survey about a year ago of patients with prostate cancer, and more than half had poor quality sleep. And actually, about more than two, uh, three quarters of their partners have poor quality sleep. And I think there's a lot going on here, you know, um, 
prostate cancer treatments could affect, you know, sort of urinary patterns. Some patients with prostate cancer take drugs that cause hot flashes. But then, you know, just other things like the um, anxiety of having a cancer and things like that. So a, a lot of things can affect sleep, but healthy sleep is also very important for, you know, good quality of life. And so uh, just something not to forget about sleep in there. Are there things that potentially reduce the risk of biochemical recurrence or prostate cancer coming back after you've been treated? Are there things lifestyle-wise that can support that? Yeah, so uh, we have a new paper coming out also uh, with uh, the plant-based diet and showing that consuming more plant-based food reduces the risk of progression of prostate cancer. And this is after people are diagnosed, so it's never too late to improve the diet. Um, There's also been studies from this same um, study population showing that brisk walking uh, may reduce the risk of uh, progression of prostate cancer or high-intensity interval training. So, you know, physical activity, very important. So all these same things have, uh, you know, are potentially beneficial in terms of reducing the uh, risk of progression of the cancer. That's really great. That's really encouraging. And, you know, guys, if if, uh, if being plant-based means you have better erections after prostate cancer, I mean, I think that's a pretty good endorsement of, of well, dietary change. Yeah. Well, it's also associated with better erections in people who don't have prostate cancer. So that was actually the impetus for the study because we published that about two years ago, that people who ate more plant-based were less likely to get erectile problems, you know, to begin with. Uh, however, the prostate cancer population is a bit challenging because, you know, people of surgery or radiation for prostate cancer have some added challenges in terms of erection, since those treatments may affect the nerves that are controlling the erection. So above and beyond sort of the problems that contribute to erection issues in the general population, things like, you know, obesity, diabetes, smoking, uh, prostate cancer treatment kind of gives this extra insult. So it was nice to see that even in this population where there's some really additional barriers to good erections, still the dietary pattern was significantly associated with better scores for erections. So I think it's nice, you know, patients ask me all the time, is there anything I can do? And there is something that you can do. And so I like this because I think it's nice to actually have a positive message because, you know, you don't want to feel hopeless uh, we should have, we have a lot of hope. There is a lot that you can do to reduce the risk of progression and to have a better quality of life. And so we should do it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it, you make a good point. So, you know, typically you would think that a plant-based diet would only affect the blood flow aspects of erections and prostate cancer treatments often affect the nerves to erections. But that is great because a lot of things that we do for people who have blood flow issues don't always work for men who have prostate cancer in terms of treatment. So um, that is really uh, interesting and, and great information. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think if this stuff is all tied together, right? You know, I mean, the penis these blood vessels are very small. You know, the blood vessels in the penis are a smaller diameter than the blood vessels in, you know, the heart or that go to your brain and stuff like that. So that it is a very early indicator. You know, if there's not enough blood flow, it can be the indicator that the, you know, that there's something wrong in terms of the blood flow in the body. And, you know, there's been um, randomized trials. For example, Dean Ornish has published randomized trials of a vegan diet and physical activity to actually, 
you know, reverse coronary plaque in people with coronary heart disease. Um, you know, and so and that was in, you know, JAMA, one of the leading medical journals many years ago. So if it's possible to actually reduce, you know, the plaque in coronary vessels, you know, and also even to, uh, you know, um, to cause remission of diabetes, these kinds of factors are very important in the penis with these very small blood vessels in terms of trying to make sure that you can get as much blood in there as possible. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, This is a big question I think a lot of people have. So if they've gone through prostate cancer treatment and now their PSA is undetectable or at the lowest point is going to be, for example, after radiation, what about starting testosterone replacement therapy? From a cancer standpoint, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so great question. So this is a huge issue of controversy over the years because um, actually even the Nobel Prize uh, many years ago was awarded for this discovery that if you basically... you know, uh, do either surgical or chemical castration and reduce somebody's sex hormones to a castrate level, that that is a way to treat advanced prostate cancer. So the thought was if the treatment for advanced prostate cancer is to achieve castrate levels of sex hormones, then is the opposite a problem? So if somebody actually takes testosterone, could they be, you know, increasing their risk of prostate cancer or could it cause the progression of prostate cancer? And so that's been a real uh, big controversy. Now, the current data, thankfully, suggests that people who have low testosterone, that taking testosterone therapy does not increase the risk of prostate cancer. So we published a big study on this out of Sweden. We looked at the entire country of Sweden at everyone who used testosterone prescriptions there, and we linked it with the cancer registry to see who got prostate cancer. And actually, the long-term users of testosterone actually had a lower risk of high-grade prostate cancer in the long term. And so we did not find anything that was concerning there. And then even more recently, there was just this big randomized trial of testosterone therapy versus placebo. And again, they did not find um, an increased risk of prostate cancer with testosterone therapy. So I think we could say it's been put to rest that testosterone therapy in people who need it because they have low testosterone that's symptomatic doesn't cause prostate cancer. Now, for somebody who already has prostate cancer, there isn't as much data on what to do because what happens if you have prostate cancer but you do have low testosterone and you're symptomatic, you know, maybe you have low energy, low libido, erection problems, you know, whatever it may be, and can it ever be safe to take testosterone in these people? Um, And, you know, there's different guidelines on this. Some of the guidelines say basically like, you know, there isn't a a lot of long-term data on this, so we don't really know the balance of benefits and harms and talk to your doctor. There are other guidelines that suggest that if the cancer has been treated and there's been an interval of time where there's no evidence that the cancer is recurring, you know, that it is something that can be considered, but it requires, you know, a thorough discussion of the risks and benefits with the doctor, you know, because we just truly don't have the long-term data and careful monitoring. So I guess that was a very long answer to say that, yes, 
testosterone therapy can be considered in people who have been treated for prostate cancer and have gone a period of time where they have no evidence of disease. But just like anybody else, testosterone therapy should only be used in people who actually have a documented low testosterone who are symptomatic. And so there is some inappropriate use of testosterone in this country. And so it should not be used in people who haven't had their testosterone level checked. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. And especially if they have a history of prostate cancer, because we need to be really sure that that person really needs this. Uh, if we were to even consider this, given the fact that there are potential risks and benefits here. Yeah, I think it's really important to have that discussion. And But it's also really helpful for quality of life for people who are symptomatic, um, because there are significant benefits in libido, in mood, in erections potentially, um, in uh, desire, in um, even, like I said, depression, people who are having depression and, and some bone health benefits. So I think ultimately, um, there's quite a bit of benefits for testosterone when done safely and appropriately and monitored, it can be done and it can be done safely. But knowing that starting testosterone, typically, if you're if you do have prostate cancer, and your PSA is very low, will increase your PSA slightly. And so not to be alarmed, but just to keep an eye on it, because your testosterone receptors at some point when they get uh, when they finally get that testosterone, they will increase your PSA. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the main thing here is just to make sure that you have a doctor who really is an expert in this area, you know, because this is a tricky topic. And so testosterone is really not something that should be given by just everybody because it needs to be really monitored, and especially in somebody with a history of prostate cancer. So I would not do, you know, just any old place. I think finding somebody who specializes in testosterone therapy is really very important for this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we end our podcast with a few sort of questions that are kind of about you more than just your expertise. But is there something before I get into that, that you want the general public to take home that we haven't talked about about prostate cancer? I mean, I think the main messages are really, you know, to talk to your doctor about screening if you're a male over the age of 40, because that is the best way to find it early, and that you do not have to have the finger test for the prostate exam if that is a barrier, um, you know, and just general healthy messages, you know, uh, meat is, is not good for cancer, so eating more plant-based, getting physical activity, these are all, you know, just really good strategies to reduce the risk of prostate cancer and for better quality of life in general. Great. So tell me something that you know now in your life that you wish you learned earlier. I think I wish I learned earlier that, that meat was carcinogenic. I mean, I don't think I would have consumed any hot dogs in my lifetime if I knew that that was putting me at an increased risk of cancer. So I wish that there was more awareness about that. Yeah, that's a good one. What is um, a non-negotiable, something you have to do every day? Exercise. Yeah, you are really good at that. I know I you've, al you've always been exercising every day. And, you know, I'm a busy person. Everybody's busy, but I think you just have to prioritize self-care. And exercise is just so important for mental and physical health. And I think there is always a way to make it happen. And, you know, even just reducing the amount of sitting, you know, park 
further away in the parking lot, take the stairs. I mean, whatever it has to be or whatever it looks like, even 10 minutes is better than nothing. So it's interesting because, you know, it used to be that the physical activity guidelines for Americans had like a minimum amount that you had to do per day and they removed it because it turns out that literally like any activity is better than no activity. So that is non-negotiable. Yeah, and I have to say that I've been actually thinking about this a lot, the step counters that became very popular. I think they've been so helpful because just like you said, just walking a little bit more, whether it's parking further away or just taking a five-minute break in your day and walking, like if you do that throughout the day, that adds up. And so just adding that into your day can be very simple, very manageable, and very doable. For sure. I mean, I think any and also, you know, it can be sort of a gamifying situation, you know, so if like using the step counter gives you a challenge or a goal, you know, I love that. I mean, some people really thrive off of that kind of feedback. So whatever it is that you need to do to like get inspired. And there's so many ways to get physical activity, you know, that people don't have to go to the gym if you just don't like that, you know, so just figure out whether it's, you know, gardening or whatever it may be. But there's a lot of ways to get physical activity that are not involving like repetitive exercise if that is just not something that you enjoy. Yeah, pickleball's all the rage right now. Try it, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, what is something, I know you're passionate about many things, but what's one thing that you wish you could do or would be done that would change the world? Well, I mean, I think everyone having access to the internet would really change the world because I think it is just so fundamental to have, you know, democratization of information and the availability of knowledge globally. Yeah, that's a good one. I think we take that for granted in the United States because public libraries have the internet. So even if you don't have access, most people can access the internet in the U.S., um, but definitely, and there's certain areas in the U.S. where they don't, uh, but also around the world. It's a, it's a big, it's a big thing that not everyone has it. Um, last question, what is a health hack or something that you think improves your health outside of exercise, which you've already mentioned, um, that you would give to people? I mean, I think just, uh, you know, having an overall sense of well-being and stress reduction, I mean, everything is really tied together, you know, the mind and the body, uh, you know, and I think, um, you know, just focusing more on finding ways to have pleasure in your day and reduce stress, whatever that be, may be. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the Blue Zones documentary, but this idea of finding purpose and meaning and people who do that really do live longer, you know, and there's studies on this and social connection. So maybe some of the secret to health, you know, goes beyond some of these traditional things that we think about, like screening and seeing the doctor and even, you know, nutrition and physical activity, but just about how we live our life and our, our mindset and how important that can really be for our longevity. Yes, I love that. I think purpose is so important. I think that's why sometimes when people retire, they don't have a purpose and that can be a big de decline in their health ultimately. Um, and also social connection. I see so many people with issues like incontinence 
where they become isolated and they don't leave the house and they don't spend time with people because they're embarrassed. And I tell them, I spend time and I tell them, this is, you know, you can't live like this. Like you will, this is so important for health, having social connection. It doesn't have to be best friends. It can be social connection with your neighbors or with your barista or with your grocery person. But just having those connections with people is so meaningful and so valuable for our, for our overall health. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and there's just so many ways to get that, you know, whether it's through, you know, church or uh, group fitness, I mean, whatever it is that drives you, you know, but I think everyone trying to find what what makes you want to wake up in the morning and get out of bed, you know, what is going to give your life more meaning and who can you surround yourself with to provide support that has, you know, some common meaning with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on today's episode of the Rena Malik MD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to check us out on Apple or Spotify podcasts and leave us a rating or review. If you're listening on audio, make sure to check us out on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. These are easy, zero cost ways to support the podcast so we can continue to grow and create more content. And if you're enjoying this, feel free to follow me on other platforms, including Instagram, Threads, Facebook, TikTok, X, and anywhere else, really. And as always, remember to take care of yourself because you're worth it.